I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call with them so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion worth of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them at 514-488-3168 and see how Research FDI can help you create real prospects. Hello, this is Chad Chancellor with Next Move Group. Before we begin today's podcast, if you've been enjoying our podcast series, Please go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That'll sure help us out. We'd appreciate it a whole lot. Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. So today our guest is Mark Williams. He's president of Strategic Development Group and has done corporate site selection work and economic development for 30 years. I have long said he's one of the best site selectors that I'm aware of. I've said that on my show, Mark, without you listening. Thank you. And I really appreciate that Mark likes to put deals in small to mid-sized towns. Now, he'll put them in big cities, but he also likes to put deals. I mean, I think he appreciates, based on what I see, you put deals in places near Nashville, Tennessee, and places that I grew up and loved. So I've always appreciated that. And Mark just wrote a book called Corporate Site Selection and Economic Development, a 30-Year Perspective. And one of our movement members up in Grenada, Mississippi, Mark, actually, I didn't realize you had written it. And he told me he was reading it and what a great book it was. So we said, we got to get you on our show. So uh, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good to be here, Chad. Thank you. Yes, sir. And so y'all can go find this. We'll say this several times through here, but SiteSelectionPerspective.com is where you can go find this book. So a lot of books have been on the market recently, and I'm reading them and I'm enjoying them. Many of them are more for economic developers. This one's really for both economic developers and corporations looking at doing site selection. It's almost 50-50, so I think it'll interest both sides of that. So, Mark, why don't we start with uh, you just telling folks a little about yourself and what motivated you to write this book? Sure, Chad. I have been in the business for 30 years. A good bit of it was in the public sector side. I ended up running the operations of the South Carolina Department of Commerce. So I managed their global recruiting efforts and got some perspective on working with governors and public officials. And that was helpful. And I started this company in 1999. So it's been 22 years. And our focus is helping principally medium and large global companies, U.S. companies and global companies, find sites, deal with those issues that you're familiar with related to finding an optimal site and finding the best financial situation for them. So it's been a great ride and I look forward to a lot more. And I really felt like it was time to write some things down. That's why I wrote the book. 
some things about what I saw in economic development, some things I saw in site selection, uh, kind of the good, and there's plenty of good, but there's some bad and the ugly. And I wrote a little about that, too, to hopefully help a lot of people out. Yeah, well, I saw yesterday on LinkedIn or something, you were in Arizona for a groundbreaking of a steel rebar mill. So congratulations yeah. on that. Seems Thank like you. you had projects right through COVID. So seems like some of your deals are popping now. I'm seeing you all over the place. Thank you. One of the things that really got me right in your preface of the book was you've got a statement that says economic development and the process of selecting sites for industrial and headquarters facilities are the most important business activities in the United States. You didn't say they're among the most important. You didn't say you might want to try to get it right. It's semi-important. You said they're the most important. That got me right out of the van. Mm -hmm. So talk about why you feel that way and how this book gets into some of that. Well, economic development and site selection is God's work. I mean, successful economic development absolutely drives this country's economy at a fundamental base level. And if our communities, states aren't creating investments and jobs, then we don't have a national defense, then we don't have education, then we don't have roads. We are out of luck if this process is not competing globally. So, yeah, I believe it's one of the most fundamental, most important economic activities in this country. Absolutely, I do. People need to understand that. They need to understand how important that is and how important the people that do this work are to the success. Well, let's hone in on that. So we might skip around a little. I had that question later because my questions flow as I read the book. But you talk in here about how the media doesn't understand it, and a lot of times people don't understand it, and they really need to. So just talk about what we need to do to educate them and why it is important for those folks to understand what we're trying to accomplish. Well, the first couple chapters of the book are basically about why do economic development. And I put that up front because I thought it was fundamental. I've had some come back to me and say that was really useful and entertaining. And some said, man, that's a little dry. There are a lot of numbers in there. But the fact of the matter is economic development creates economic impact. And economic impact is all about starting a little fire and have that fire grow, you know, a snowball that grows. And so understanding the multiplier effects of, okay, we created 200 jobs here and we have an investment here, but that's just the beginning. I think I show in the book a graphic of an iceberg and Above the water is kind of the direct impact of what you see when there's an announcement. But below the water, there's even a bigger mass of benefit. And people need to understand this. They really, government officials, company officials need to understand the good that they're doing when they make these decisions, too. So everybody needs to understand how it works. I totally agree. And when COVID first hit and we had all the lockdowns, you know, I always knew a lot of times the media might not understand it, but that's the first time I really realized how little people understood about how things are funded. And I'm not arguing whether the lockdowns were right or wrong. That's not my argument. I'm not a politician. But I remember when, you know, right here in New Orleans, you shut all the restaurants, you shut all the conventions. And I remember thinking, all right, is anybody thinking about this is going to cost hundreds of millions that we're paving right. roads with and bridges right. and right. schools. And is anybody thinking about that? And then 
about four months later, everybody said, oh, wow, you know, all our budgets are broke. It's almost like it was a surprise. <laughs> and I was, I was like, how did this creep up? How did y'all not see what we were doing here? Right. <laughs> you know, and I don't know how long it'll take New Orleans to ever recover. And then we get a hurricane. So that's a whole different. But I actually have a graph that I use when I'm doing a board training with elected officials in St. James Parish down here. Shell Oil's closing a refinery. And there was right. an article in the Times-Picayune or the Baton Rouge Advocate that came out. It's going to cost the schools $12 million a year in property taxes and all they were collected. And it's going to cost the parish $20 million a year. So you're talking school buses, school teachers, you know, teacher aides. You're talking bridges, roads. And co- so if you just probably, reverse engineer one plant, then that shows well, you how much. That's it. probably just the direct impact. That's not the subsurface portion of that iceberg. That's just the beginning of the loss that's going to occur. Right. Yeah. So let's picture the iceberg. I'm looking at it. Y'all can't see us, but I'm looking at the iceberg on my screen. And so picture, you know, the Titanic cruising along there. And so what Mark (laughs) has in the book is on the top of the water is what you see. But actually this iceberg, if you look at his book, you're going to see it's about twice as deep. So what you don't see, according to his argument in the book, is probably twice as much of the unseen effects that you get when you land a project. That's it. I mean, You've heard, I mean, the private sector creates wealth, and I talk about wealth creation in the book and economic development, and my definition of wealth is a bit crude. It's about taking other people's money, whether it's yen, euros, yuan, and importing it into your economy from the outside. Government doesn't do that. It just recirculates money. So we need that private sector investment. That allows the public sector to function, and you mentioned the media, Chad, I mean, Part of the reason for writing those first couple of chapters is for them, too, as to all this. You know, there's a lot of negativity related to incentives, and some of it's probably deserved. But every public sector official and organization should be looking if they're considering incentives as, you know, what's the return on investment? And if it's a good return, then it's a good investment. If it's a bad return, walk away from it. It's just that simple. But it's a conscious decision. And not doing anything, you know, 80% of something's better than 100% of nothing. That's right. Well, one of the things that I like in here is you really, I think, make a compelling argument to corporations about the importance of site selectors and where you intersect with economic developers. And that's probably one of the reasons I always enjoyed you when I was in Tennessee and I remember you coming to visit is you know, you had a respect for the economic developer. And a lot of times these corporations will go hire one of the big real estate firms or accounting firms. And those folks may be good, but they're only maybe looking at the real estate piece. They're not looking at the holistic piece of what, you know, the dirt only makes so much of a good site. And you get into that in here. But one of the things you say is you say that this book is about the intersection of economic development and site selection and how they function and why that's important. So talk about really that intersection and and why you think companies ought to use a real site selection consultant instead of trying to do it themselves or just looking at it as a real estate deal? Well, the intersection of economic development and site selection, we need to interact with economic development officials on every level. Only they know the specifics about their communities. You know, databases are more and more important. There's no question. But only those guys know. Only they can tell that story. There's a good bit in the book about, you know, there are even case studies of corporations that make mistakes. They handle projects themselves. They're biased in some way towards 
a certain location or they forget to evaluate this or they forget to evaluate that. And oh, by the way, then they make a 50 year decision where they're economically compromised over and over and over again. So it's important to be guided by someone, probably a qualified site selector that's unbiased, that's acting purely in their interest to maximize the operational and economic benefit to them. And, you know, I could talk on another podcast with you about bias and site selection. I mean, if if I'm working in real estate and I'm getting paid by a transaction, I'm going to try to close that transaction. And I'm not saying that's always bad, but if I'm driven to close sooner, am I doing the full evaluation of labor, site, other things? So the site selection community, the qualified site selectors present a holistic approach that weights factors and comes up with the most rational decision. And when you're investing 50 million, 100 million, a billion dollars, you make a mistake. It's a painful forever situation that we can help them avoid. Well, and you even talk in here that even once the mistake is made, a lot of times then the corporation may know it, but don't want to admit it (laughs) because it was such a big endeavor. Then they get themselves stuck there. They get stuck. See it all the time. Yeah. Well, and folks, if you're interested in learning kind of the site selection process, Mark's actually got that towards the back of this book. I mean, the different facts you want to consider. So whether you're a company looking to do it or economic developer interested, and again, you can find it at siteselectionperspective.com, but he actually has in there a list of various different things that you might want to consider. What would you say, Mark, is the number one mistake you see companies make? Do they not know how long it's going to take or overweight one thing? And I know it's all different, but if you just had to say one thing, you see more often than others. Often they start a site selection project and they, you know, I call them in the book, the have to haves and the nice to haves. You have to start a site selection knowing what's absolutely essential to your success. And every site you consider has to pass that screen. So often companies acting on their own, forget one or two have to haves and they might spend six months or a year looking to only find out that either a they have to start over or b they make a decision that's just really bad so that's probably the most fundamental and early mistake that's made is not understanding the have to haves and that's part of what we do in our alignment process with our clients is have that discussion about what they need and what the weights of importance are. You'd think they all know, you'd think they get it right all the time, but that's not the case. Well, and you've been doing this now 30 years, I guess, right? You started strategic development group in the 90s. So, I mean, you've been doing this now 20 years on this side. And most companies may only do one or two site selections, you know, in 100 years. And so it's not that they're bad people, but they just don't have the expertise that you do looking at it every single day. It's our company's focus. We have staff that's also been doing it 20, 25 years. It's all we do. And I think that matters. We love interacting on the economic development side, and we do some site analysis on the economic development side. But our core focus is working with corporations to help them make the best decisions they can. Yeah. And I know you got Jeanette Goldsmith on your staff, and I've worked with her in the past, and I think a lot of her. So, I mean, I think y'all got it. Fantastic. Great team there. And you're in Greenville or Columbia? I can't remember if you're in. Well, it's interesting. We're in both right now, but we bought an office in Greenville and we're going to move most of our activity to Greenville. We're kind of in a transition right now. 
So what did you do before? I know when you worked for Department of Commerce in South Carolina, what did you do before that? What actually got your introduction into this whole world? You know, I started my career working for a coastal engineering firm. I worked on beaches and seawalls around the southeast and around the world. And so I worked in a technical setting. As I was doing that, I grew to love business, how people got business. I love the consulting profession. Decided I wanted to run an engineering firm and maybe I ought to go get a business degree. And maybe, you know, because engineering firms generally like to be run by mechanical and civil engineers, which can be problematic. So anyway, I went to business school and was introduced to site selection by one of my professors. I started working on maquiladores in Mexico. And so that's when the love was hatched, probably five years into my career. I went back to school and, you know, I thought when I went to the South Carolina Department of Commerce, I'd work there two years and start my consulting practice, but I ended up staying nine and it was a good run and the business probably wouldn't be what it is without that time. So that's kind of engineering, consulting, government, and then now 22 years in private site selection. Yeah. Well, one of the things you do in here is go into the history of site selection, which really interested me. So I've always heard of the Fantas Group, but I had no earthly idea of who started it, what it was. I really found that part interesting. So I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit, but for those of you out there wondering, how did all this start? Mark tells you in this book. Yeah, you know, started in the early 1900s. But, you know, Chad, it's kind of been spotty. And one of the things in the book, I talk about site selection firms. I don't know, my estimate is there might be 50 or 75 firms active in this country. So, you know, there are probably tens of thousands of accounting firms and tens of thousands of law firms. But the site selection practice or the professionals involved in it are very narrow. They're boutique firms, they're big accounting firms, they're real estate people. So it's evolved from the FANUS scenario, you know, one or two big companies to really widespread group of different size companies. And what's really fascinating about this business is our company's not large. It's frankly less than 10 people, but we do billion dollar deals. I mean, BP's a client, BMW's a client, Bridgestone's a client. I mean, we managed to get hired by big global companies because of our reputation. So that's where it's evolved. There's a diverse group of professionals offering this service, and they're very successful at it. Well, you put in here for economic developers, some of the things that are obviously key for them are keeping their site databases up and doing product development. And so I want to give a little story, and then I'd like your input on it. So we're searching for a project right now that needs 75 megawatts of power rail, and several other factors. And there are certain geographies that's hard to find. I didn't know when I was an economic developer, I've learned it on this side. If you really invest in infrastructure on your site and get all your diligence and get that thing where it needs to be, you may have a huge leg up, not just a little, a huge leg up on others, because we're seeing that now for a project that we're doing. And within here, Mark, you talk about site databases and product development. So Talk about the importance of that and maybe give economic developers a little advice. Well, I think, and it's been said many times before, having some product or some place for a locating company to go is essential. If it's not there, they're not going to come and look, and they eventually they're not going to locate. So I think it's imperative for each community to decide 
what are they suited for in terms of their transportation logistics, their demographics or other assets and develop sites that would be targeted to companies that would treasure those assets and frankly not care so much about their liabilities because every community has those too. And so my first and most fundamental recommendation on the site development side for economic developers is figure out who you are, figure out what your strengths are, and then develop those sites on that basis. And I have to tell you, if you're a big company and you need certain infrastructure like the project you mentioned, you're probably not really not going to worry whether the dirt's entirely free or there's a cost. I mean, the real estate cost is a non-issue. In reality, I mean, psychologically, free sites are wonderful things and we like to negotiate those. So knowing what you are and what you aren't and then focusing on developing product that accentuates those assets, that's the key. I see a lot of economic developers trying to be something they're not and it's just never going to work. Yeah. Well, you've got in here that rural communities, particularly, you think one of the mistakes they make is not selling to their assets. And so yep. I met you when I was in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half south of Nashville. So it's rural, but it's a great place, great labor force. I mean, I've been going right. from there 10 years, so I don't have to give their sales pitch, but it'd be a great place to put something. And you're only an hour and a half from the big city. And so I often felt that maybe some of the big real estate you know, companies wouldn't want to get far out of Nashville. Plus, you know, rents were a lot higher up there. But you and several other consultants, you know, y'all looked favorably because we were close to the big city and had this and that. And so talk about the rural ones that you see that maybe maybe the I find maybe the rural towns are stronger than they think. They just don't know it and they don't know how to sell what they have. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, Chad. I think the exercise I just mentioned is even more important for rural communities and and defining what their assets are. I mean, in Tennessee, we did some work for. Phil Bredesen years and years ago, where he hired us to go work in a specific county that had a 30% unemployment rate. And we went down and we looked at it and it was hard to see from an industrial development perspective, you know, what their assets were. I mean, you couldn't get there by truck. There was no retail, no housing, no restaurant, nothing. But as it turned out, they had smoking hot internet. They had a groundwater that was great for bottling and other things. And so I think as hard as it is in some rural communities, you've got to figure out what those assets are and go hunt down those people that treasure those assets. And, you know, I use the example about my wife in the book. You know, she loves me for my assets and she doesn't care about my liabilities. And there are quite a few of them. But that's what the rural communities have to do. And it's a little harder, perhaps. But even in your community, Lawrenceburg, that you mentioned, I mean, it is an ideal destination for a certain group of companies. And it's a question of identifying who they are and not wasting time on things that don't matter. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners. Be right back right after this. This week's Executive Search Spotlight is on the Regional Development Association of East Central Kansas and Emporia, Kansas. They are seeking a president of the organization. It's a 25-year-old organization that was created to be the lead economic development organization for the city of Emporia and Lyon County, Kansas. Emporia is located about halfway between Kansas City and Wichita, if you can picture that, a little bit southwest of Topeka, basically a short drive from everywhere. 
This is an organization that's had stable leadership over the years and had all kind of success. A sampling of some of their private sector employers include Cargill, everybody's heard of Cargill, Hostess Brands, Pratt Industrial, Simmons Pet Foods, Tyson Fresh Meats, and a host of others. Those are the ones, though, that nearly everybody would have heard about. Simmons Pet Foods just announced a $38 million expansion in the last year. This is the disc golf capital of the world. Now, as a golfer, this interested me. This might really surprise you. Emporia, Kansas is referred to as the disc golf Disneyland of the world. And it's home to the Dynamic Disc Open, which brings in 1,700 disc golfers from 47 states and 10 countries to Emporia for a week filled with fun playing disc golf. It's also an avid cycling community and considered the gravel grinding capital of the world. If you have ever driven that stretch from Kansas City to Wichita, I've done it many times, you go right through the Flint Hills, and they're absolutely beautiful. They're voted one of the eight wonders of Kansas. They're located a hair west of Emporia. They're one of the last remaining tall grass prairie ecosystems in the world. If you like sports like me, Emporia is not far from Lawrence, where the University of Kansas is, or Manhattan, where Kansas State is, or Wichita State, either one. Emporia has an award-winning health care facility, and Emporia State University is one of the finest medium-sized universities in all of the Midwest. This job's going to pay $115,000 to $130,000 plus competitive benefits. If you want to apply for it, get your resumes in by Friday, October the 8th. Friday, October the 8th. You can send your resume to Emporia at the next move group.com if you want to see the job profile put in the next move group.com backslash emporia well let's talk a little more for the corporate folks since we're going to have them listening too you've got a figure in the book that really defines the site selection funnel from the initial sites when there may be i don't know 50 or 100 right down to picking it so Walk through that whole process so that our corporate listeners, that probably interests economic developers too, can really understand the process of getting yourself from that big list to picking the site. So it is a funnel, Chad, and it's a top of the funnel when you're doing a site solicitation. You're trying to gather sites that meet the certain have-to-have criteria. The goal as you go through the funnel is to, as quickly as you can, reduce the number of sites based on your due diligence. And so you know, we'll solicit sites, we'll do a desk analysis, we'll reduce those sites, we'll go visit them, we'll do various due diligence of verifying the have-to-have, starting to look at the nice-to-haves and weighting those. But it's a process, and it needs to be orchestrated, it needs to be efficient, and you can't get down toward the bottom of the funnel. You can't get down to four or five sites and find out that one of them doesn't have one of the have-to-haves. I mean, that's a huge mistake because your clients... Your corporate clients starting to do engineering and other analysis that's costly. So getting through that funnel as quickly as you can and efficiently as you can is critical. And where I often see the mistakes in corporate site selection that's not guided is they're just looking in the wrong place. They got to start that funnel all over again. If you're trying to bring a product to market or you're trying to reduce your cost, that is not a friendly thing to have happen. Right. Well, and I remember when I used to be an economic developer, I would get you know frustrated that a project would start and stop or the timeline would change. And now that I sit on the private side of the table, I see, you know, sometimes there are reasons for those. Economic developers shouldn't always, you know, assume you did something wrong or the project's weird or, you know, sometimes they'll get a new contract that just totally changes their logistics or they'll lose a contract. Just stuff happens all along the way. Right. So now I see that more 
of course, as a site consultant, you want to push them. But I now see, sitting on this side of the table, I now understand how projects will just go cold and start back up and all of that kind of stuff. Well, that's part of what I was saying earlier about the benefit of, like, you having economic development experience and then private sector experience. I mean, to me, the public sector thinks a company should know exactly what's going to happen. Tell me how many jobs. Tell me how much investment. Tell me your timeline. And like you say, it's dynamic. I mean, they could be introducing new technology. They have to deal with markets. So companies don't know everything. It's a bit dynamic. You want to get them as close as you can. And we work for that. But that's not always the case. Companies, on the other hand, probably need a little more understanding of the public side. Uh, there are just certain things the public can't do. It might be the right business thing, but they just can't do those things. So in the premise of the book, as you mentioned earlier, it's the intersection of site selection and economic development. And how do you reach the optimum situation based on the needs of those two parties? And that's what it's all about. Yeah, I hate when the states want you to fill out all these forms, like before you have even visit to get their proposal. And you're like, you know, that's part of what we're doing, <laughs> part of our analysis. Which I sometimes think you guys are trying to, you know, get engaged before we've been on our first date. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the companies don't want to fill all that out when they first go around. So they want to fill it out. They can't fill it out. And, yeah, some states want you to kind of say, well, OK, the funding's approved. Well, no, the funding's not approved because we're going through a process. We need yeah. to justify the project. This is part of it. And you got to show the board the deal to approve the funding. Right. Yeah, that's right. I want to get into the top 10 site selection mistakes for corporations. But while we're right here, are there tricks that economic developers can use to just better write an RFI that might get them in the funnel? So, I mean, you know, they get an RFI from you. Their site is what it is. Have you found that a good economic developer just answers the question a different way or more thoroughly than a bad one? Or, you know, are there things they can do that will more likely give them a chance to make it into your, you know, past your first cut, so to sure. speak? Sure. Economic developers need to trust site selectors in terms of what they're asking for, when they need it, what the timing is. So for a site selector, it's like an onion, and you're peeling it layer by layer. And when you're approaching that economic development team, you're working on a certain layer. And that's what you need. And if you get past that layer, we'll move to the next one. So my advice to economic developers is answer the questions you're asked. There's a reason for that. Put yourself in the place of a site selector. You know, if you get 100 sites and you're not getting answers that you need for that particular time, there's no way you can evaluate it. It's tough. So answer the questions that are asked. If you come up short on something, maybe you don't have sewer to a site or water or whatever it is, don't just say no. Say not right now, but here's our solution. Here's our solution. Water, sewer, gas, other things are going to be in the have-to-have list. So Show the solution to wring out the risk. And that alone is going to be a big deal. Going to help out. All right. Mark's got the top 10 site selection mistakes. So let's just go through these. You've hit on a few, so we might not spend as much time, but just a little on each one. So number one, lack of alignment among the client team. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mentioned it briefly. It's a question of what's driving our success in terms of the location, the demographics, the customers, the suppliers, the utility needs, the site, the growth we have to have. And if the client team isn't aligned in the beginning and they embark on a search, generally what's going to happen is somebody from the client team is going to step in later and say, hey, you didn't address X. And there you go back up that funnel again. You don't want to go back up that funnel. You want to have an organization at the top of the funnel that you're going to keep moving down in an efficient manner 
addressing the have to haves and the nice to have. So that alignment's critical. There's a big list in the back of the book. Uh, maybe we're giving away secrets, probably not, but the purpose of it is to help clients, uh, the private sector, see how many different things they need to be thinking about before they start a project. Not, gee, I read a magazine article that it was nice here, nice there. And you'd be amazed how much of that you see. Yeah. Well, and do you find that within a company? So when you have that alignment meeting, do you find that sometimes the CFO versus the HR manager versus the logistics person, like they'll all have kind of different ideas of what success. I guess part of your alignment is getting all of them to agree to what success looks like. And that's a real skill set. I think we have, it's like a focus group and you got to get some consensus. And frankly, I think it's productive to have an exchange and maybe differing ideas as long as you get to the end in, in terms of the core site selection parameters. But if you don't have that discussion up front, it gets uglier and uglier. The further you get through the process, you're spending money and time. So a professional site selection consultant is going to be a bit of a counselor, a psychologist and getting there in the beginning. And yeah, there are probably going to be some sparks flying, you know, within the client team. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, you know, we have clients that say, well, we want to be here. And then our next question is, well, why? And they tell us why. And then we'll say, well, there's two other alternatives that might even be better. And they say, oh, you're right. You know, so that has to get done. And oftentimes when a company embarks on its own to do it, maybe it's easier for an experienced party to make that happen. Or they hire somebody with bias that just takes them to X because they have some reason they want them to be there. Then it's just not good. Right. Mistake number two, you've got is not setting up a competitive project environment. Yeah, I mean, incentives don't make deals, but they can make them a lot better. And, you know, I see situations where you may have a, like a heavy electricity user and a corporation acting on its own selects two finalist sites, both served by the same electric utility. That's no fun. There's no room to negotiate. So whether it's between states or between railroads or between electricity providers, to me, it's always best to have options in different locations with different providers and situations. All those options have to check all the boxes. They all have to check all the boxes. If you don't set that up early, if you end up in a project and you just say we need to be here or you have the same suppliers, it's a problem. Number three is failure to maintain confidentiality. Well, we've all experienced this where our clients, you know, they explain how confidential the project is because, you know, their competitors can't know and this and that. And then they show up at a big meeting with their company logos on their T-shirt or on their shirts or this or that. And, you know, managing confidentiality is a real important aspect of what we do. We manage it. We coach and we manage. It just doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen just because you have an NDA, as you know. That's a nice piece of the puzzle. And you find different disciplines in your clients that really need to understand. Engineers don't need to go to a site and say, God, we really like this one better than the other one. Yeah, no, we don't need that. So confidentiality is important. Number four is non-optimum logistics. Well, you know, if you're a big auto supplier or a big OEM and you locate somewhere where there's a $15 a car shipping disadvantage and you're making 450,000 cars a year and the plant's going to be open for 50 years. I mean, you start to see, you know, how important that aspect can be. So, 
logistics uh, for many projects, not all projects, but for many projects that involve barge, rail, highway transportation, customer suppliers, critically important to understand those fundamentals early on in the process. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners. Be right back right after this. This week's Executive Search Spotlight is on the Regional Development Association of East Central Kansas and Emporia, Kansas. They are seeking a president of the organization. It's a 25-year-old organization that was created to be the lead economic development organization for the city of Emporia and Lyon County, Kansas. Emporia is located about halfway between Kansas City and Wichita, if you can picture that, a little bit southwest of Topeka, basically a short drive from everywhere. This is an organization that's had stable leadership over the years and had all kind of success. A sampling of some of their private sector employers include Cargill, everybody's heard of Cargill, Hostess Brands, Pratt Industrial, Simmons Pet Foods, Tyson Fresh Meats, and a host of others. Those are the ones, though, that nearly everybody would have heard about. Simmons Pet Foods just announced a $38 million expansion in the last year. This is the disc golf capital of the world. Now, as a golfer, this interested me. This might really surprise you. Emporia, Kansas is referred to as the disc golf Disneyland of the world. And it's home to the Dynamic Disc Open, which brings in 1,700 disc golfers from 47 states and 10 countries to Emporia for a week filled with fun playing disc golf. It's also an avid cycling community and considered the gravel-grinding capital of the world. If you have ever driven that stretch from Kansas City to Wichita, I've done it many times, you go right through the Flint Hills, and they're absolutely beautiful. They're voted one of the eight wonders of Kansas. They're located a hair west of Emporia. They're one of the last remaining tall grass prairie ecosystems in the world. If you like sports like me, Emporia is not far from Lawrence, where the University of Kansas is, or Manhattan, where Kansas State is, or Wichita State, either one. Emporia has an award-winning health care facility, and Emporia State University is one of the finest medium-sized universities in all of the Midwest. This job's going to pay $115,000 to $130,000 plus competitive benefits. If you want to apply for it, get your resumes in by Friday, October the 8th. Friday, October the 8th. You can send your resume to Emporia at the next move group.com if you want to see the job profile put in the next move group.com backslash emporia do y'all do the actual logistics analysis and cost modeling or do you have a partner you bring in or does the client do that or how do you actually put a cost to the logistics the first thing we do is we insist it's done We can do basic logistics analysis, but complex analysis, we're going to bring in experts. The company may have experts. We'll verify that. If they don't have the expertise, we have a variety of vendors we use. I think that raises an important point, Chad, about this whole process. Part of our value in all this is not how much we know, but knowing what we don't know and bringing the parties that are the best in the country the best in the world to address those problems for our clients. So when our clients hire us, they just know we're going to get it done. They don't care if we do it or we bring in another expert. They know that we're going to make the rational decision on their behalf to get it done as best as we can. So, yeah, we use logistics providers. I totally understand the whole site selection process except the logistical analysis. So you made me feel better. Now we can just go hire that out if we need to. So. <laughs> 
that's you know, the one we, part we, I just we, never, I've never known how to do is figure, we, you know, how much is this going to be per ton to truck it or rail it or. It's complicated. It's complicated. And, you know, we do a lot of chemical projects. You know, there's certain chemicals that are difficult to haul. There's safety issues, other issues. You need the best of the best. That's what we're selling. That's what we're selling. We're not selling to bill everybody out on our staff. We're selling to bring the best solution we can. And number five is lack of site diligence. Well, you know, there are many times that companies act on their own, and often the price of a site seems to matter most. They may close on one site because it costs less than another, but they haven't done the due diligence. And by the time their development costs are figured out, you know, their net costs are much more. Sometimes they're deal killers on sites. You get way to the bottom of the funnel and you figure out that the wetlands won't allow the layout and expansion that you really need, or there's rock, or the water table's too high and you can't do your foundations. Our customers need somebody that's thinking about that big picture, or the site selector that's thinking about that big picture, because if they don't consider those due diligence items, it's going to be a problem. Next is limiting the search area. We kind of talked about that. So let's skip it and go yep. to number seven. You've got selecting a site that's too small for future growth. Talk about happens, that. Happens all the time. Sometimes it's a kind of a geographic and cultural scenario where people from certain countries are used to less availability of land and they search for sites that are too small. But probably one of the more common problems we see in site selection is a site selected that's too small. It doesn't anticipate future growth, and that future growth can't be accommodated. But typically, in particularly big site selection projects, I mean, there's a huge investment in infrastructure up front, and that investment has to be spread across not only the initial investment, but future investments. And so asking that question in the alignment at the top of the funnel about what could this be in 30 years is really important. And when that doesn't get asked and the site's too small, it's an issue. All right, for our corporate listeners, really listen to this one. And number eight is failure to document commitments. So as you're looking around, you're going to have people offering you tax abatements or lower electric rates or this or that, but you got to get that documented. So talk about that, Mark. <laughs> well, there have been cases when the members of the economic development community have been short with me on this point because I want every conversation that relates to a commitment or an indication that something would be accomplished, I want to document it. It could be an email. That's fine with me. Because you find at the end of a large project, you've been working on it for nine months, and when it comes time to develop a memorandum of understanding and final agreements, you need the list of everything that was committed to, from the naming of the road to the gas pressure to the water line size. And I find that companies that often, not all the time, that do this on their own. They're not keeping track of this stuff. And it sounded great when they heard it, but they don't capture it. And it needs to be captured in the end for the benefit of everybody. So that's a mistake. And number nine is not understanding the true value of the incentive package. This frustrates me when I read news articles and they'll say, uh, you know, and I'm going to make up this, I, you know, this may not be, but Toyota and Tupelo is going to get a $900 million tax credit. And I think to myself, they'll never be profitable enough to use all of that. You know, what does that really turn into? So talk about how you really got to figure out apples to apple. What is the value of the incentives you're being offered? Yeah, that's a mistake that's often made, not understanding the value of incentives. And, you know, 
companies often when they act on their own, they're going to get different proposals with all kinds of numbers in them and timeframes. And it's very important to be able to sift through all those proposed value pieces and understand, yes, can they actually use them? If so, how much can they use? When will it occur? What's the risk it won't occur? And, you know, the general timing of it. We see so many people come to us and hire us after they've been through the process themselves. And, you know, they're assuming the package is $100 million. And after you sift through it and then maybe do a net present value analysis on it, it's much less. And so there's the potential they can make a business decision without full information. And that's just a terrible, terrible thing. So we have cost models. We have that experience. We assess the risk so on and so forth. So you're right about the big package you mentioned, and most companies don't understand how that works because when they get these proposals, they're apples, oranges, peaches, and pears, and they don't fully understand. And actually, when I was an economic developer in Paducah, Kentucky, we landed a deal with a real nice automotive supplier. I mean, multi-hundreds of millions of dollar year revenue, but it was still owned by one man, and he had it set up as an S-Corp LLC. So like all the money flowed back to Michigan where he lived. So he basically got nothing, but still in the paper, you know, we're giving him 25 million of tax incentives. (laughs) So I will buy this book just for this one example. I mean, I wish I had read this on day one, Mark. So I want you to talk about this. You've got here example one of a site location choice, creating a logistics disadvantage. And one of the things I like about this, Mark, is you write this in what I would call common sense. You don't have to be a Ph.D. of economics to understand it, but you get into if a company's got 100 truck trips a day. And each trip is disadvantaged by 150 trips based on where they are. You know, how big of a disadvantage is this going to create over time? You know, in other words, how would you overcome this? So, I mean, that's just a common sense term that you can really think about that I think is good. So one of the things I really like in here, you give case studies of potential. You don't name companies, but scenarios where a company or economic developer can play that out in their mind. Yeah, I mean, those case studies, too, for corporations, Chad, I'm just trying to give examples of the cost of miscalculations, not doing that alignment, not checking the logistics, you know, not creating a competitive environment, you know, how these mistakes I've mentioned might manifest themselves. All right. Well, as we wind down, folks, it's siteselectionperspective.com. But I got two more questions for Mark. I want him to put on his genie hat or his psychic hat. You get into this a little in the book. Number one, how do you think onshoring and reshoring will play out? Everybody's talked about it through COVID. How's all this going to play out in the future? Well, it's going to be a gradual process. You know, I think there was a thought maybe a couple of years ago with tariffs and then with supply issues, supply chain issues generated by COVID, that there was going to be this massive influx into the U.S. And my prediction has been or remain that We're probably going to see more investment in the U.S. as a result of supply chain issues, as a result of increasing wages in China. But, you know, companies just don't decide to close facilities and open them. They got to go through a process. It takes time. They have to adjust their supply chain. So I think this onshoring is occurring, but I don't think it's maybe as hyped up as it was presented. I don't doubt there won't be more of it than there was. But it's going to take time and it's going to be a gradual process. That's what I'm trying to say. My last psychic question is, how do you think the use of office space is going to change over the next decade? Well, I think it's going to change. I think particularly with big offices, you know, 300, 500,000 people or more, 
there's going to be some kind of hybrid model. A number of our clients are evaluating it now. And, you know, I don't know what I predicted in the book. I think maybe we're going to need 85% of that office space, maybe not 100%. I think when companies' leases are coming up, they're going to reevaluate those leases based on what they think this equilibrium is going to be after COVID. But a lot of people got a taste of working at home and working remotely, and there are really some benefits to that to a certain extent. And I think companies are just going to rationalize what the best scenarios are, but I think it could result in a reduction of particularly large office space. Maybe that means there are going to be smaller offices developed. I mean, I just bought an office building, so you know, I'm not thinking everything's closing down. I do think the bigger ones, though, probably going to be scaling back. All right, folks, that is Mark Williams with Strategic Development Group. You can go find this book at SiteSelectionPerspective.com. You can also buy it on Amazon, all the usual places. I bought it on Amazon myself and read it on my iPad. So you got all those various options that you can find it at. And the glossary is just fantastic. I mean, if you're new into economic development, you ought to buy this just for the glossary. I mean, he gets into all the things, all these, you know, word soup of stuff you're going to hear that might take you a while to understand. So I think it's worth buying just for that. So, Mark, thank you for spending some time with us today. And uh, I'll give you the last word as we conclude. Well, thank you, Chad. It's great to see your business and these podcasts doing so well. And I'm really interested in talking to people about this book and getting it in the hands of economic developers and corporations, too. So appreciate your help with that and and look forward to hearing from people and seeing you soon. Yeah, y'all go to SiteSelectionPerspective.com. If you're looking for it on Amazon or wherever, put in Corporate Site Selection and Economic Development, a 30-year perspective. And I think some of y'all are probably going to want to buy this in bulk for your boards. I could very easily see uh, boards and mayors also being interested in this. So if you're an economic development group with 30 or 40 folks, there's even opportunities to buy more than one book at a time. So reach out to Mark or me, either one. I'll be glad to put you in touch with him. He's one of the best. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Chad. Be safe. Take care.